I'd never given much thought about local elected officials and how their work impacts my life until COVID hit. Living in California, I learned quickly that those we voted into office were making impossibly tough decisions that directly impacted my life and that of my families. That's when Will O'Neill, a partner at a local law firm and our city's 2020 mayor, rose to the occasion and put his constituents first, leading our city's 85,000 residents and 700-plus employees through murky and uncharted waters. Because one of the best things you can honestly say, especially when you're younger, is I don't know, but let me go find out. And so that's been something that I've, I've taken into my career as an attorney, but it's certainly something that I learned early as a city council member as well. You feel like you should probably know what you're talking about the moment you get elected, and the answer is you don't. And, and you need to be okay with that. You really do need to be able to look at a constituent who calls you and says, hey, I need to know about X, Y, and Z, and you probably have never even heard of Y and Z yet. Uh, and so what you need to be able to do is just say, I don't know, but let me find out. Because what you're gonna find is, especially in a city where we have 700 plus employees, someone in there will know. As we reach the upper levels of management, it's easy to wrap our identities in our careers. The long hours, the hard work, the accolades, it can all easily lead to believing that's all you are. But time and again, my guests share the same story and lessons. There's so much more to life than work. Because our two-year-old daughter was in the room right next to us, and she was actually playing with her dollhouse, and she was holding the dad in her hand, and the dad was saying, I can't play right now. I'm too tired. I can't play. I've got to go to work. I I think that one of the things I would tell my 30-year-old self is probably just don't wrap your identity up in your profession. Will shares that in this digital age, it's easy to forget how simple gestures go a long way to form positive and long-lasting impressions. Uh, And the other thing I would say is keep writing handwritten notes because so many people are used to just text messaging or posting on social media or, or whatever. Uh, But man, what a difference it makes when someone actually goes to the effort, even if it's like five minutes of effort to write you a handwritten note, address it, put put a stamp on and actually put it through the mail system. So minding your P's and Q's matters, and it's what he seeks in potential job candidates. The one thing that I really look for is, can I put you in a room with a major client alone? and know that I'm going to have that client when you leave the room. It's really important to me that uh, you're the kind of person that in those moments, you can handle it. Uh, And also, by the way, coming all the way back around, when you don't know something, be totally comfortable saying, I don't know, but do the diligence to follow up to find out what the answer is. I've never met Will O'Neill in person, but I'm so glad some listeners encouraged me to invite him as a guest on Mentor DNA. He and his colleagues on the Newport Beach City Council work hard to set our policies and ensure that our laid-back beach town remains safe, special, and well-managed on so many levels. Welcome to the Mentor DNA Podcast. I'm your host, Mish Pierce, and I chat with C-suite executives and inspirational leaders so that you can leverage the lessons they share in your career. You'll hear what makes successful leaders tick, lessons they've learned through their successes and failures, and memories shared about boardroom experiences and tough conversations with colleagues. Full bios, book recommendations, and more details about my guests can be found at mentordna.io. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Will O'Neill, and my very first job was actually as a soccer referee. And so I, I made money by uh, working the weekends up in Fresno, the Central Valley, which was often really hot, uh, but they coaches would pay you in cash. And that was awesome, especially when you were a teenager. Uh, less awesome was getting yelled at by the parents. Uh, but that that was something I guess it prepared me for the two jobs that I have now as an attorney and also as an elected official. But I'll tell you, I actually still volunteer uh, from time to time and give back as a uh, soccer referee which is a lot more enter- entertaining now <laughs> when actually a lot of the parents will, will recognize me locally. Uh, but after, uh, after high school, I went to college. Uh, I always had a job in college after my first quarter, uh, making money at the Alumni Association. I worked new student orientation. I, I went to law school, same thing. I always had a, a job some way to make money. Uh, then I was working at the California Supreme Court. And then I came down and worked at a small law firm here in Orange County. That was in 2007, 
which was a good year to graduate, but 2008 was a bad year to be a first year associate. And so I ended up going to another law firm. This was small, but really well established. And then for a few years there, uh, during the recession, we were actually doing really well. And so a lot of large law firms were trying to acquire us for the two partners, for three of the partners, I should say, it made sense for two of them to go one way, another to go another way. I joined the one that was going to a law firm out of Texas called Haynes and Boone. Uh, and that was a great experience. We, I was there for about four and a half years. We grew the office from 10 lawyers to about 34. And then actually I left uh, at the beginning of 2015 to go back to my small firm life. And then right around then I had a friend of mine try to convince me, which he did successfully to go run for office. And in 2016, I became a city council member in the city of Newport Beach. And then in 2020, I was the mayor reelected in 2020. And um, now I am both an attorney and also in my sixth year on the Newport Beach City Council. Oh, my goodness. So much to unpack there. Did you ever have visions of serving in public office? No, I actually thought I'd be a judge. So my dad is a judge, a federal judge. My grandmother was an attorney and my great grandfather was an attorney. So I'm actually a fourth generation attorney through my grandmother, who is an amazing person. Uh, and then my my dad, also amazing. But I, I really thought I'd end up being a judge. And so my trajectory that I kind of saw for myself was make partner at a large law firm, work for a little while, and then try to become either a state court or a federal court judge. Uh, but when I made the transition back to small firm life, uh, I made that for a handful of reasons. One of them was definitely not to go run for office. Uh, but, <laughs> but like I said, I had some friends who thought it would be a really good idea. And I ended up going down that path. And um, I'm really glad I did. Wow. Well, so you have a servant's heart and uh, I'm sure you've put your education and your experience to really good use because as I believe you're a business litigator, that's the type of thing you have to be really good. I mean, you, you, you know, your reputation is everything you can't, you have to be really good at dealing with people, reading scenarios, reading situations, understanding business landscape, political landscape a lot interwoven into that type of a career. So I'm sure it wasn't an easy transition for you, but I'm certainly glad that you were our mayor during 2020, which was an absolutely crazy year, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit later. Yeah, I mean, I there are times when I actually don't know how non-lawyers do it uh, in public service, in, in elected office, because, for example, every, every uh, twice a month, we'll have a city council meeting. And that will be, it takes place on Tuesday. The Thursday before the Tuesday meeting, we'll actually get an agenda packet that is anywhere between 200 and 1,000 pages long. And so if you're not used to reading a lot of information, digesting it, and then trying to figure out which questions to ask and how comfortable you are with a particular policy decision, uh, it becomes really difficult. But if you are in, if you've gone through law school and you have been an attorney, uh, you're used to that sort of thing. So like I said, I, there are times when I don't really know how non-lawyers do it, but there are plenty of non-lawyers who do it. And so, um, and very effectively too. So I, I do appreciate having that legal background going into the uh, public service side of things uh, for sure. And and look, you you mentioned servant's heart. I, I got really lucky because I had two parents who have shown what public service is all about. So I mentioned my dad, state court judge, federal judge. My mom actually was a was the president of an organization called the YWCA in Fresno, uh, which is an organization that uh, takes in women and children who are in domestic violence situations. And so when I was a kid, my sister and I would actually go to, with her to what was called the Marjorie Mason Center uh, after school. And so we'd be in that environment while we're doing our homework. So we always understood when you are really blessed with a lot of uh, things, and we were as kids, you know, you, you get back. And so I, I'm really fortunate to have had that kind of example in my life growing up. Yeah, that's a real blessing to be able to see, you know, other people in your life, especially your parents who are so involved in the community and who are giving back. It's a great example. You're lucky to have had that. What is the one thing that you feel you have to do every single day to get your day started? I read. I read a lot. And so when I wake up in the morning, I, I have my phone next to me, which I know I know you're not supposed to do, and it, it does not help the sleep uh, routine, and it certainly doesn't help you with kind of your mental state. And I and I do need to kick this habit, but um, it is right next to me. So as soon as I wake up, I, I check a lot of news sources to see what's been going on and what the news is of the day. So I'll read a lot uh, of publications. So 
for example, in the mornings, I'll read the uh, LA Times, San Francisco Chronicle, Sacramento Bee, Orange County Register to see what is going on in, in their headlines. Oftentimes, I'll click through to actually read the stories themselves as well. And then once I get out of bed, I'll go read a chapter or so of whatever book I'm reading at that moment, usually at the table while I'm eating breakfast or drinking coffee. But I, I don't know of a day where I don't wake up and start reading. Mm, that's wonderful. That's a good habit to have and, and also very important to whether you're in business or any job to know what's happening in the local community and at large. And now international news is so important. I mean, just as simple as doing a you know backyard remodel, it's important to understand what pricing is for wood because it helps to inform your decisions on so much. So yeah, it's been a crazy time the past couple of years. And so sad what's happening in the news today. And we probably won't get into to too much of that, but just what we're reading in the headlines, the very end of May, 2022, it's just, you know, heartbreaking. So yeah, good, good idea to be reading. And I love your breadth of, of options that you're reading. It's not just one perspective. You're seeing a lot of different perspectives, which is fantastic. That's advice I would give to a lot of people, uh, especially when I talk to high school students is, you know, don't, don't get set in your ways, especially your ideological ways uh, so quickly. And, and certainly don't think that your perspective is the only one that matters. And you should be in this confirmation bias loop that apparently we seem to be fed all the time through algorithms on social media. Instead, you know, go out of your way to make sure that you're reading information that's really challenging to you. Uh, and also, you know, make sure you're having conversations with people that don't see the world the same way that you do. Mm -hmm. It's amazing how many times you can perhaps maintain the same conclusion, but get there a different way. And that path that you take to get from one decision to another really matters because it helps inform you know, who you are. So for example, I really enjoy listening to interviews of people who I don't agree with because I really want to understand how did they get there in terms of a, a journey, but also why do they believe what they believe? And you know, a good example is uh, I was listening to an interview recently given by a progressive prosecutor out of Philadelphia who, look, I just don't agree with on most of the social uh, justice issues that that particular prosecutor has taken into the job. Um, but it's like 10 percent, maybe 15 percent where I sit there and go, yeah, yeah OK, I, I'm with you on that. Um, and, you know, it's really important to understand where we are and how we how we get there, um, because actually, for example, one of the things that a lot of um, a lot of the the prosecutors that have adopted policies that look I like up in Los Angeles or San Francisco I don't agree with but some of the policies dealing with civil asset seizure or civil civil asset forfeiture policies which is a really niche area um, of policy but it's one where I really agree with them on and so actually in Newport Beach one of the first things I did when I came on was reform our our civil asset seizure policy so that the city of Newport Beach will not use any proceeds from a civil asset seizure that comes from law enforcement unless there's been a conviction. Um, and I know that sounds kind of wonky, but it really matters in a situation where in the criminal side, it needs to be you know, a very high standard of proof. But on the civil side, it's only basically 50 plus one. And if you have your stuff taken by law enforcement, you shouldn't have to go prove it was your stuff and not ill-gotten gains. It really needs to be one of those issues where they come in and say, hey, we, you know, we want to uh, we, we actually need to prove that a crime has occurred. And like I said, I know that's kind of wonky, but it's one of those things where if you can find common ground with people, oftentimes you can actually start a, a better dialogue. And so listening and, and having those conversations is a whole lot better than just throwing barbs on Twitter. Yeah, well, Twitter is such a mess and who knows what's going to happen with Elon Musk and the purchase of that company. But uh, yeah, I've even found that Instagram, really, I'm, I'm getting more and more news from Instagram, which is not my original, you know, my original intent of using that was for something much different. But I have found that I am following people on all sides of, of the political spectrum, because I want to hear what those perspectives are. And probably one of the most interesting and I've learned the most from is a gentleman out of Philadelphia, coincidentally, and uh, his handle is Black Guns Matter. And he's a libertarian. He's very in his in his he writes uh, similarly to what you do. He writes about, you know, this is the thing that just happened today. And here's my perspective. And he's very consistent. He says, if you believe this and you have to believe this for all aspects. And so yeah, it was yesterday. He had a really nice post. It was a picture of him 
with his daughter and he says, you know, human life is so important. And he says, but you have to be consistent. So if you're mad about what happened in Texas and what happened, you know, across the country in the last however many days, then, you know, what are, what's your perspective on abortion? So it's just interesting because he's very consistent and he calls people out on both sides to say, hey, you're not, you're being inconsistent. So I feel that I've learned a lot from from reading, you know, sources that perhaps I wouldn't have typically read. And I've learned a lot on, on gun history and, and gun violence from his particular, you know, handle. So interesting stuff. So what's been the distinctive inflection point in your career? Was it when you left the big firm? That's exactly what it was. Uh, and the reason why I left is why it was the inflective point, because I mentioned I was at Haynes and Boone, and that was a great law firm. They they gave uh, associates a lot of resources to grow their business, to be able to grow as an attorney. Uh, they really cared about the whole person. And I loved that law firm, and I thought it was a fantastic firm. One of the things about working at a really large law firm, though, is that you spend a lot of time away from home. Uh, you just do. You, there's there is always something to be done, and and clients that need a lot of attention, a lot of service. That is what we sign up for, and they pay me very well to do that. And they really did give me a lot of runway to to grow. Uh, but at the end of 2014, uh, we had had our daughter in 2012 and our son in 2014, and I was just gone all the time. And that was something that I didn't experience when I was growing up. My parents were always there for us when we were growing up. And I just saw the trajectory and said, this is not going to be sustainable for our family. So my wife and I sat down at our kitchen table and we talked about what it would look like to go back to small firm life. And as we were having that conversation, uh, she, she said, hang on, just listen. Because our two-year-old daughter was in the room right next to us and she was actually playing with her dollhouse and she was holding the dad in her hand. And the dad was saying, I can't play right now. I'm too tired. I can't play. I've got to go to work. And my wife said, you feel like someone's talking to you right now? Uh, I said, yes, I hear, I, I hear it. I, I hear that. And so I ended up leaving and then going back to small firm life. And the idea at that time was to have three changes in priorities. So the first one was going to be spending time with the kids as they're growing up. And I've been able to do that. And it's amazing. And my son just finished his first season in kid pitch baseball, which was really Painful. ugly baseball. <laughs> yeah, that was really ugly baseball. Um, but it was still great to be at just about every game. And then, um, you know, being able to be there for my daughter when she's doing music recitals or, uh, you know, or, or her soccer team that at AYSO that actually ended up doing really weirdly well this year. Uh, it was, it's a lot of fun to actually be there for them and then try to be home as much as I can on, at dinner. So that was number, that was the first priority. The second one was get more active in our church. I had been really active at a church uh, before we'd moved to Newport Beach. I've been really active at a church uh, down in South Orange County, but not so much when we moved to Newport. So I got involved at a, our local church. It's a fairly large church in Irvine called Mariners. And I got involved in a men's group there. And then my wife and I got involved in a life group there. And so it's been fantastic. It's a great community. And then the third was get more active in the community itself, which I expected to be nonprofit board work because I kept turning down offers to go on to nonprofit boards because I just didn't have the time. And it was at that moment when a friend of mine came to me and said, hey, there's going to be an opening on the city council in Newport and you should run. And my first response was, no, that sounds terrible. Um, but uh, he ended up enlisting some friends. Uh, they, you know, they, they really pushed on it. And I ended up telling them, look, I'll tell you what, for the next six months, introduce me to people who know what it's like to run and serve and all the reasons not to do this. So I can just give you one of those and be done with this. And a lot of doors ended up opening for me that really had no business being opened and under normal circumstances, but they did. And then I ended up deciding to go run for the city council and, you know, knocked on 3000 plus doors, only got bit by one little dog. And, um, <laughs> but, uh, but I, yeah, I ended up winning in 2016 and been serving ever since. Wow. That's incredible. There's, there's so much there. And I, I don't think unless people have served on a nonprofit board or for-profit board or in public service, I mean, I don't think anyone can really appreciate. And I certainly didn't. I've served on plenty of boards and I just didn't really appreciate until probably I would say the last five years, what it really means because the board is ultimately responsible for the mission and vision of an organization. And there's so much nuance, you know, of, of what the rules are or the backstory, things we can't share. And that really informs decisions. And I'm sure that's the same thing with city council is there's so many 
I mean, you're saying an agenda can be 200 to a thousand pages. I don't even understand. Like, is it just because it has all the detail in there? But right. But you're talking about every single twice a month you're reading. There's so many issues to be discussed and how do you prioritize that? So I can see how a business background is very important to that. And also, I mean, a finance background, and it seems like because you're on the business litigation side, you probably have some pretty deep finance chops, but I would love for you to talk a little bit more about, you know, city of Newport beach has 85,000 residents. And what does a budget look like? I mean, we're not talking, you know, when you're talking about, I don't know, when you think about these things, you don't really think about numbers. So how big is that? Newport Beach's budget is massive. And so we, you're right, we have 85,000 people. We have a full service police department and fire department, lifeguards. Uh, we have an entire harbor. And so, you know, we, we are a full service city and our budget is over $260 million this coming year. And that is just an incredibly complicated city. And it's and you're right. Uh, having a little bit of a business background was really helpful. Uh, one of the doors that I mentioned that got open for me that really had no business being opened was I actually got added to the Newport Beach Finance Committee. The Finance Committee was actually a really interesting one because I had applied in to be on the Board of Library Trustees, and I actually thought that I had the votes for that. And right, you know, shortly before the City Council was going to be voting on that, a member of the Newport Beach Finance Committee was caught embezzling money from a congressman's campaign fund. And obviously you cannot serve on a city finance committee when that happens. And so he resigned. And then the person who's rep who had put him on to the uh, finance committee called me and said, look, I really need someone who I can trust and who can understand this. Uh, are you in? And I said, yes, I'm in for that. And so it turned out I had a, a knack for understanding municipal budgets, which I will say very different than a budget that you would otherwise see you know, because we don't make profit. Uh, that is not the goal. Uh, the goal is to actually use the money that comes in for a whole wide range of services, some of them in this current year. So every time we pay an employee, obviously that is a current year issue. Uh, sometimes we have legacy costs from employees, such as our pension liabilities. And then you're also trying really hard to invest in the community for the long haul as well. So uh, you need to be able to look at it and say, what does the city need to look like in 5, 10, 20 years from now? And how do we need to invest in that? So, And you have a whole range of options. I mean, we have a lot of facilities here in Newport Beach. Uh, we also have a lot of needs. Uh, we have 68 parks, for example. I think most people don't know that. But uh, we need to make sure that we're maintaining a lot of our roads and our waterways and uh, boy, I think we interact with just about every federal, state, and county agency known to man at some mm -hmm. point or another, just simply because this is a city that has has become just incredibly complicated over the last 50 years. Yeah. So currently, the city of Newport Beach has six city council members. Is that correct? We have seven city council members. Seven city council members. And you vote amongst yourselves who will be the mayor for the next year. Is that correct? Right. So, yeah, they're basically two different kinds of systems in Orange County. Uh, there are 34 cities in Orange County. Uh, nine of them right now have a directly elected mayor system. And in that system, you have an even number of city council members and an elected mayor. And then that mayor is more than one one year. Some are two years, some are four years. But what they really do is they have a consistent mayor position where they can go out and make sure that they're advocating on behalf of the city outside the city uh, while also maintaining and running meetings within the city. So no no one in Orange County is considered what a, a strong mayor system. A strong mayor system is like what you'd see in L.A. Or, or Los Angeles. But an elected mayor system is kind of the trend that you're seeing in Orange County. Uh, the rest of the cities, including Newport Beach, do what's called a rotating mayor system. And a rotating mayor system is where you have seven city council members or five, but in our, in our city, it's seven, seven city council members that are elected by the people. And then every year at city hall, uh, the city council members rotate. Um, and so it, you, you end up with a mayor that's one year on and then someone else takes over. And it's a system that you know has worked for a lot of cities for a while. Uh, but as you see more and more complicating factors and you see the the need to actually go advocate outside the city, a rotating system, it's become a hindrance rather than a positive. Yeah. And based on my experience, whether you're serving in, you know, in corporate America or serving on a, a board somewhere, I mean, one year, you just, it's really hard to get anything done. And that's a governance issue. I think 
I think a lot of people don't really think about it that way, but you think about, especially, I mean, let's just go into your year. You start in as, as mayor in, I'm thinking it's December of 2019. So pre COVID, we're just starting to hear things out of China. We don't really know what it is. And you are the mayor all the way through the following December. I mean, to get anything done, how can you actually get anything done? Because you have to have relationships with state officials, all the different agencies, sometimes in some cases, potentially federal. And so you have to make those relationships. You have to be able to go out and understand your local politics and how those different agencies work together. I mean, just a simple example, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later, but is you know, the difference between CHP and sheriff's department and police department. And first of all, how do you even build those relationships, right? I mean, it's, it seems to me that one year would just not be enough on boards on which I've served one year certainly would not be enough. I I've seen, you know, it generally takes two years just to get your bearings and then really to be effective, you know, maybe the third year, you're really starting to, to jive and hum as, as a team. So I've, you know, I've heard a lot. We have a measure B on the ballot that's coming up on June 7th. And I've, I've really studied what that is. And that's to be able to elect our mayor. And there are a lot of signs everywhere that say no on B. And there are a lot of signs that say yes on B. I would just encourage people you know, the, the opponents that with whom I've spoken have said, Hey, I don't like it because if it's not broken, why are we fixing it? What are we trying to fix? And my perspective as a tech person is, but shouldn't we be innovating? Shouldn't we be looking forward? You're talking about 250 million, $260 million budget. Shouldn't we be having someone who really understands it and who's not just there for a year? I mean, how, how can you possibly be effective in a year? And so I would just encourage everyone to go out and read the materials, read it and really understand it because everything that's coming in the mail, a lot of it does not necessarily line up with what I read in the document that, you know, is, is sort of on the docket for what we're voting. I would love your perspective on that. Well, uh, I am a proponent of measure B. I I do think that there are a handful of reasons why Newport Beach should be moving toward an elected mayor position. One of them is, quite frankly, the mayor should be directly accountable to voters as opposed to the people that put the mayor in there, which are the only, which are only the council members. Um, and look, I, I'm one of the council members who could be mayor and has the ability to vote on this. And I've experienced it for six years, including being mayor and being the beneficiary of the current system. And I still am trying to convince voters to take the vote back. And so you don't get that very often. You don't have city councils say, hey, we have a power and we'd like the voters to decide whether to take it back. But the stars aligned on this one, and that's where we're heading in terms of allowing at least the voters to make the decision for themselves. And look, I agree. I think that not only should you have a kind of a longer runway when you're seeing, you know, when you're a leader of a community in order to be more effective, but it's also a little bit of a roll of the dice uh, when you have a person come in as mayor. Uh, some years are going to be 2020. Some years are going to just be nothing um, and, you know, just ribbon cuttings. And but even in those years that I, I'm kind of pejoratively calling nothing, there's still a lot going on. I mean, one of the one of the biggest issues we have across the state right now is dealing with housing and, and the policies that are coming out of Sacramento on that front. And uh, a lot of the policies dealing with law and order and crime uh, coming out of Sacramento as well. So we continue to experience a lot of issues that are as much external and affecting us internal as anything else. And so needing those ongoing relationships they really matter. And as long as you know, you're not shifting the system completely over to something like a strong mayor system, then you know, making sure that you have that consistency as opposed to this uh, consistent mayor instead of a strong mayor, I think that makes a lot of sense. And so we've been out there talking to a lot of people. And to your point, there is a lot of misinformation out there on what this is. So look, we're, we're talking right now and we're just under two weeks left in the election. If you haven't voted yet, just go ahead and take a, um, a read of the Newport Beach City Attorney's impartial analysis on the city website and, you know, see what see what it says for yourself. Uh, obviously, our city attorney is not beholden to one side or the other. The whole position is to give you an impartial analysis. And, you know, look, last thing I'll say on this is during 2020, every Thursday night, uh, I was actually on a phone call with all 34 mayors in Orange County. And so you could tell really quickly some cities 
when they rolled that dice on the rotating mayor system, it worked for them. Uh, they got lucky and some cities did not. But I know one thing, which is that none of those people had to campaign to the voters as, hey, I could lead, I could be the leader of your city on these phone calls with all the other mayors. Would you like that? And, and I think the voters would have a different perspective on who they were electing if they knew that the person they were electing was going to be mayor or, or a city council member that might rotate in into a year like 2020. But you're right, 2020 was a total aberration, but it, it goes to show massively why it matters, mm -hmm. why to have voters select someone uh, who's actually running for the position and be accountable to voters, number one, and number two, have those consistent relationships outside the city to uh, work with areas like the county health director or, uh, to your point, the Orange County Sheriff's Department and other agencies that really affect our quality of life. Mm -hmm. And so to let, let's say this does pass, what's in place, like what governance pieces are in place to prevent this you know, strong mayor system from occurring. I'm not familiar enough with that, but maybe you can talk to that a little bit. Sure. Well, a strong mayor system is usually, an, uh, it's a mayor that actually exists outside of the city council. So it's a lot more like having a governor with a state legislature than it is uh, having a normal traditional city council. An elected mayor system in Orange County, and this is true for Newport, would be true for Newport Beach as well, is where you have seven people on the city council, six council members and a mayor, and the mayor is one vote of seven, and so is each city council member. A city council member's vote is one of seven. So the mayor can't do anything unilaterally because you still need the support of a majority of council. And so that's the check and balance system that you end up with. You know, in the proposed system, at least under Measure B, right now the city manager sets the initial agenda, and then three council members can add something to the agenda. Under this system, the mayor would be able to set the initial agenda, and three council members can add something to the agenda. Uh, the idea basically being that the only thing the city council is supposed to be doing is basically setting policy. The only way we can set policy is if it's on the agenda. And so setting the agenda is, is pretty darn close to at least uh, introducing policy goals. And I love our city manager. She's amazing, but she's not elected and accountable directly to voters. And uh, so we should have a system where the agenda is being set by the people who are actually accountable to voters for the policies that they're setting. Oh, I see. So right now the city manager has the ability to add things to the agenda. That's right. She sets the initial agenda, the, you know, the large one, and then council members can add items to that agenda. Like I said, I think our city manager is great, but her main function is to actually execute on what we do. So think of it like a board of directors and a CEO. So a board of directors is the city council setting the policy and our city manager's job is to make sure that that policy is being implemented. So uh, she actually is in charge of overseeing about over 700 employees that we have in the city of Newport Beach hmm. to to accomplish the policies that we're setting. But she's not a policymaker and she'd never claimed to be. Um, uh, but the agenda itself is the way we set policy. And so it should that should really be up to the council to make those those decisions. I see. OK, so what's your why? Why do you do what you do? Oh, boy, I. My why ends up coming back to trying to recognize what talents God has given me. I think that there are so many amazing people out there who have these talents that are just, that are so interesting. And you also kind of have to understand really quickly what your talents aren't. And I've learned a lot more about what my talents aren't. So for example, I would be terrible as a preschool teacher. Um, and <laughs> I, I, when we go to church, I would be an awful person to be in the young person Sunday school. I just, I couldn't do it. My wife, on the other hand, is amazing at that. She is a Sunday school teacher and um, for young kids. And I just, God bless her. I cannot do that. But I, so I know, I know a lot of things that I'm, I'm not very good at. And so I like to surround myself actually with people who are much better at those things. You know, one of the, uh, one of the talents that God gave me is to actually take really large amounts of data and information and really kind of be able to put it into a bite-sized piece so that other people can understand what it means and then use it into their daily lives. And so that's actually worked out really well for me, obviously as an attorney trying to explain things to clients, but as an elected official, it's been amazing because being able to talk to people about really complex public policy issues and then explain it to them in ways that make sense uh, without, of course, talking down to them and then saying, hey, you know, you can use this into your daily life. That's been fun. I, I've been able to do that uh, for the last few years, especially, uh, especially through social media in ways that I think people have appreciated. 
Uh, but I'll tell you, it's it's a it's a funny talent to have. But uh, that has been that's been that's been a large part of my why is trying to figure out you know, what what the talents are that I've been blessed with, so I can actually go out and use them for for other people's benefit. Yeah, wow, that's a that's really really important skill. I re- reflect back on my MBA program, and the best class I took was public policy class. Sort of stumbled into that one, and we would just have to read a ton of information every week, whether it was a book or whatever it is, a case study, and synthesize it into a one-page bullet point that we're sending to the CEO of the company. So how can you explain this in very simple terms so that someone who is hyper busy can actually understand it and use that in his or her next meeting? So that was, that's a really, really important skill set. And I do enjoy following you on Instagram because you do talk a lot about policy that perhaps I hadn't even considered or didn't even realize was affecting me. Right. So it's nice to be able to have someone who is explaining those things sort of behind the scenes. Yeah. And it's a lot of fun. I mean, I, so I started, I started using my Instagram account and my Facebook account um, in ways that a friend of mine who does a lot of social media work has told me I I'm, I'm totally cheating on Instagram. Like I'm using it in a, in a way that it's not supposed to be used. <laughs> um, so it turned out that in Instagram, you can actually, you know, obviously you can post a picture, but the words that you use, you can use up to 2,200 characters. And most people use that to create hashtags and kind of explain the story of the picture that they've posted. I actually use it differently, completely differently, because I take a picture that someone submits to me and I've, I've actually been posting for two years now and I've never run out of material because people keep sending me <laughs> pictures, uh, which has been amazing. Uh, and, and so I, I love using other people's pictures on this, but I call it a quick daily update. Um, it's now Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I, I could not sustain <laughs> every day, but uh, it's Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And I use all 2,200 characters usually to try to explain a policy issue that I think is interesting. Um, yeah. And it's grown. I've had a lot of I have a lot of people reading the leading, reading about public policy issues that I find really interesting and I didn't think anyone else would, but it turns out there's been a thirst, especially since 2020, there's a thirst for knowledge about the public yeah. policy that's affecting people's lives, especially in a way where, um, you know, we're not talking about it using things like what I call hashtag policy, which is just a really short soundbite uh, where a, a politician is either yelling at another politician or, you know, they're trying to synthesize a really complicated nuanced issue down to, you know, hundred, a hundred characters. You just can't do that usually. Yeah. And yeah. so being able to talk to people about things that I think are interesting and other people find interesting too, has been a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, when Twitter went from 144 to 288, it's like, oh, great. You know, I can add three more words. I mean, it's not really that meaningful. So what I would say back to your friend who says that you're cheating on Instagram is, hey, they're giving me 2,200 characters. I'm just going (laughs) to use them. (laughs) So all that being said, you were in office as mayor in 2020 in the city of Newport Beach. What's the craziest thing you've experienced? Was it during that year? And what was it? All the craziest things in my experience <laughs> <laughs> happened in 2020. I mean, it, from the from the most serious uh, and just heartbreaking. I mean, uh, that year, what people kind of, honestly, a lot of people have forgotten already that the single worst thing that had ever happened to in our city's history that I could even come up with happened at the beginning of 2020 when uh, we lost nine members of our community in a helicopter crash. And a lot of people internationally remember that as the helicopter that Kobe Bryant and his daughter were on. A lot of people in Newport remember that as the helicopter crash where we lost mothers and fathers and and sisters and uh, and family members. I mean, it was just it was an awful, awful day. And that day continued to, you know, continued the sadness for quite some time, actually, because uh, you can't lose that many people. You can't lose that many um, young people, especially uh, and not have that that feeling of of sorrow of missing. And it, and it still continues to this day. I mean, people, we have murals in our city that remember that day. And so that was, that was just a really, really tough day. Um, so it wasn't, that wasn't crazy. That was just incredibly difficult. Uh, but then we moved into COVID and the world turned upside down. And so the craziest thing I think that occurred during 2020 was actually when the governor got involved in our beaches. And so that was just uh, that was one of these moments where you just, it was so surreal because I'm actually one of the folks who will absolutely defend the governor's reaction to COVID at the very beginning, because what what people have sort of forgotten a little bit is at that moment, you're watching what was happening in, in New York. Uh, you were watching what was happening in Italy. And this was really scary. We did not understand what this was. And so shutting down the state 
at the very beginning of this was the right call. The strange thing, though, was about a month in or so, and we really understood this is an airport virus. Uh, being indoors with people and sharing the same air is a lot more dangerous than being outdoors with people, especially out in the sun. So there were a lot of things we were understanding. So what I didn't understand was why, for example, Los Angeles County made the decision to shut their entire beaches down, all of them, because that was by far the largest outdoor space that any beachfront community had, and it was now shut down, and they were forcing people into closer and smaller spaces. So Orange County, we had our beaches open, but then there was this one day uh, in mid-April where uh, there was a photographer from a local newspaper who went out onto our pier and took a picture that she used a long lens photo, photo that basically took like two miles of beach and made it look like it was 200 yards. So everybody looked like they were on top of each other. They weren't. And I can tell you, I know they weren't because you know, on a 4th on a of July weekend, we'll have 120, 130,000 people on our beaches in Newport Beach. We know what it looks like. That day, there were about 40,000 people on our seven miles of beaches. And so for us, we knew what it felt like. We knew what it looked like. And that's not what it looked like. But unfortunately, that picture made international news. Uh, we were having a lot of people reaching out to us from places like France saying how irresponsible we were. And unfortunately, the political pressure got to the governor. And so the governor made the um, comment that hey, maybe they should be looking at closing their beaches. So we actually, I called a special meeting as mayor. And we went in and we talked about it and uh, we ended up having a five to two vote to keep our beaches open, but we put a little bit more plan in place for traffic management and whatnot. So uh, we, we were moving into that weekend and expecting it to be fine. And then all of a sudden on Thursday, uh, we find out, no, actually the governor is going to go on at noon during a press conference and announce that he is specifically closing Orange County's beaches, not every beach in the state, but Orange County's beaches. And so at that point, I said, no, I'm going to go fight for what I believe in. And so I was asked to go on a, a national national show, which I did the next night on Friday. And I ended up being seen by about 4 million people, if I understood it correctly. Some people asked if I was nervous. I said, no. They said, why? I said, I had no idea that many people were watching. Um, <laughs> and then the, uh, but, I, but I, also, I also really believed that this was the right fight. And then actually I went home and did a Zoom interview uh, with a local Fox affiliate when Dr. Drew and a, a reporter, excellent reporter named Alex Michelson, were doing a kind of COVID update every night. And so I went home, did that Zoom interview, and then that Zoom interview actually ended up being one of the trending topics on Nextdoor in all of Los Angeles County's beach communities for the next week, because so many people were saying, see, this is exactly what we were saying. Because one of the things I pointed out was that every Orange County beachfront community that had an open, you know, open beach had a lower COVID case rate than every closed beach community in Los Angeles County, which of course made sense, but at least we had the data to show it. And so there were a lot of people at that point, especially mayors, actually going to the, the Los Angeles County health director and saying, please, you've got to open up our beaches. And that eventually happened, but I was surprised how long it took. Yeah, I remember that. I was getting pictures, you know, everyone was sending me pictures of that. And I thought, you know, there's no way. I mean, it was it was a random, it was like a very nice weather, you know, April. For those who aren't familiar with California, especially coastal cities, we have what's called gray May, where it's sort of gray and hazy, and then June gloom, which is even worse. It's like foggy and, and cold, cold in the mornings. And then really, it's like 4th of July, the beaches really start you know, opening up and they're sunny. But yeah, we had this weird April of 2020. And so I remember, you know, so of course, everyone's saying you can't go to the beach. So of course, what do we do? We go to the beach. And I'm like, yeah, there's not that many people here. It's not like a, it's not like a Memorial day or a labor day or July 4th. It, it wasn't, it wasn't like that at all. There was still parking. I mean, that's a sign. If you can still park at the beach, then it's not that crowded. Well, good for you for, for doing that. And that is, that is really crazy. What would you consider a failure or a flop that's taught you a good, important lesson? Well, there are so many in, in uh, elected office for sure. Uh, I know Early in my career as an attorney, one of my biggest failures was not admitting when I didn't know something. And so I got broken of that habit, uh, but I wish I had learned it earlier because one of the best things you can honestly say, especially when you're younger, is I don't know, but let me go find out. Um, and so that's been something that uh, I've, I've taken into my career uh, as an attorney, but it's certainly something that I learned early as a city council member as well. You feel like you should probably know what you're talking about the moment you get elected, and the answer is you don't. And and you need to be okay with that. Uh, you really do need to be able to look at a constituent 
who calls you and says, hey, I need to know about X, Y, and Z, and you probably have never even heard of Y and Z yet. Uh, and so what you need to be able to do is just say, I don't know, but let me find out. Because what you're going to find is, especially in a city where we have 700 plus employees, someone in there will know. And um, and so you'll be able to go find that person and get the answer, but you need to be comfortable. And that comes with some hum humility. I would also say one of the biggest things that has affected me in terms of trying to understand uh, you know, policy and, and what matters is, are, is just working through elections. And so I remember in 2018, uh, a colleague of mine who actually invented the Duffy boat, his name is Marshall Duffield, but everyone calls him Duffy. Uh, Duffy was uh, in a pretty contested election. And I frankly just assumed he was going to win because I, I knew him and I figured everyone liked him. Elections, especially local elections, don't work that way. Uh, you need to actually go out and campaign for people that you really care about. And so uh, I didn't campaign enough and he ended up winning, but he won by 36 votes. It was just ridiculously small. And ever since then, I, I came to the conclusion, look, if I care about the city and the, the policy that matters, and I believe very strongly that someone should be in that office, especially over someone else, then it's on me to go out and campaign for that person. And for me, that means a lot more than a probably the, the average voter. But it's also taught me that once I'm off council, uh, one of the things I need to do is make sure I at least maintain a presence when I'm out campaigning. So, you know, and for a normal voter, you could do anything as, as small as just putting up a sign in your yard, uh, posting on social media who you prefer, uh, sending emails to people, talking to people. You could do more. You could host a fundraiser. Uh, you can go walk your neighborhood and go talk to neighbors and explain why you're voting for someone. So there are a lot of things that I think really matter. But especially over the last few years, when we had this great awakening of civic engagement, uh, where people have suddenly realized, oh, that's what a local elected official can do, can make my life better or make it much worse. There's a lot of people who now care a lot more about who's on their city council. And so there, there's a lot more awareness. And so therefore, a lot more people are getting engaged. And one of the things is just provide an outlet for that. And so uh, I'm, you know, I'm obviously more than happy to talk to anybody who'd like to either make the plunge into running for office, or uh, just simply support people as well. That's a very noble, very nice offer. Thank you for doing that. All right. What advice do you have for your 30-year-old self? <laughs> I, I think that one of the things I would tell my 30-year-old self is probably just don't wrap your identity up in your profession. I was still at a large law firm at that time, and I really did. I, I was wrapping myself up in that uh, profession, and I could see it. I mean, I, that's where I spent all my time. And so uh, now my identity is very different. Uh, when I reprioritized, my identity is wrapped up at church and it's at home. And so when, I, when I'm thinking about who I am and what my goals are, they are first and foremost at those two places. And so, uh, and that, and look, I loved, uh, I've, I've loved my service on the city council and I really do enjoy being an attorney, but those no longer define me the way that they used to. Uh, and the other thing I would say is, keep writing handwritten notes. Um, I was pretty good about that. I've gotten much better at that. But that is one of those things where uh, that's probably advice I give to my 18-year-old self uh, too. Yeah, because and, and, I, and I give advice all the time to people who are kind of coming up through the professional ranks. Uh, for example, I'm a mentor over at Newport Harbor High School along with a couple hundred other people. It's an amazing program. But every time I have a mentee after my first meeting, I say to them, look, here's what you're going to do now. You're going to go home and you're going to write me a handwritten thank you note for, for meeting with you. And I'm not doing this because I want to receive it, although I do. I'm doing this because I need you to start getting the habit of gratitude and also writing uh, in handwritten because so many people are used to just text messaging or posting on social media or, or whatever. Uh, but man, what a difference it makes when someone actually goes to the effort, even if it's like five minutes of effort to write you a handwritten note, address it, put it, put a stamp on it, and actually put it through the mail system. You enjoy those. And, and I, it always makes a difference to me uh, to see that versus you know, getting a quick text message. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's one of the things we've been forcing on the kids since they were little is you have to do, you have to send handwritten thank you notes. And we tell kids that all the time. If you have an interview, just write a thank you note. Where do I send it? Oh, you send it to the corporate office. It'll find its way to the person or just ask them for the address wherever they want you to have it sent. Um, it's just, it's such a nice gesture. I think they should teach that more in cotillion. I think a lot of kids actually don't even know how to address a, an envelope, you know, or, or write a check. So 
it's important skills to know how to write your first, you know, rent check when you get to college. <laughs> yes, that's a good one to know. What's the one thing you look for in a job candidate? So I expect a base level of competence or they wouldn't be interviewing with me. Um, so I'm just going to get that out of the way. Uh, but the one thing that I really look for is, can I put you in a room with a major client alone and know that I'm going to have that client when you leave the room? Um, it's amazing to me the number of times where I have interviewed with someone and just walked out and said, nope, there's no way. Uh, their manners were off. Their, um, their, their, you know, the, the way that they spoke to me was off. It, it was not going to work because I just didn't trust. I wouldn't have trusted that person to walk into a room with a major client. And so that's what I look for. That, that's what I look for. Um, I, I look because especially in the legal profession, you're going to be dealing with a lot of high intensity people. Um, oftentimes, especially in litigation, you are dealing with adversaries that are actually getting paid to make your job harder. Mm. And so uh, I want to know that you can handle that pressure, but also be someone that I want to spend a lot of time with because that is going to happen. I need to spend a lot of time with attorneys on cases at times and, and also my clients will too. So it's really important to me that uh, you're the kind of person that in those moments, um, you can handle it. Uh, and also, by the way, coming all the way back around, when you don't know something, be totally comfortable saying, I don't know, right. uh, because I'd much rather hear that on the front end so I can address it then, than on the back end and realize we've wasted a lot of time and energy. Right, right. What's something you've learned from a mentor that's really stuck with you all these years? Oh boy, it really is that, um, just have the humility to say, I don't know. So my mentor was, his name was Mark and Mark uh, was, the attorney that I went with from small law firm to large law firm. And uh, he was a great father. He's a great husband, still is. Great father, still is. Actually, now he's a grandfather and he loves being a grandfather. I've been told so many times by my parents and also other people that being a grandparent is the present for being a parent. <laughs> so they, he's, he's been, he was amazing. And, you know, seeing him, who, he, and he was intense. He was an intense individual who really demanded really, really high, ex he had very high expectations for the people that around him and the people who worked for him. But we always knew that if we wanted to just kind of calm him down for just a minute, all we had to do was ask about his daughters. And he loved talking about his daughters. And so being able to see that, you know, that personal care for his family always made an impression on me, but it, it, it really does come back around to the, um, boy, just have the humility to say, I don't know, but do the diligence to follow up to find out what the answer is. That's really good one. I love that. Humility is number one. Number one, I've learned so much through a lot of different, you know, C-suite shuffles that I've been through, that I've seen, that I've been a part of, unfortunately. And uh, yeah, humility is, is definitely at the very top. Okay. Virtual insanity, rapid fire, favorite leadership or business book. I like the effective executive by Peter Drucker. Fantastic. Really good one. Favorite pastime. Reading. Uh, it's the thing I do at the beginning. It's also the thing I do at the end of every day. Uh, and I just enjoy reading typically biographies or autobiographies. It's it's probably helpful that I really like learning about people, especially given what I do now. Yeah. So what is it that you're reading this morning? Yeah, I know right now I'm reading a book about that's called The Right. It just recently came out and it's uh, the last hundred years of conservative thought. Um, and so that's even one of those books that gives a good overview of a philosophical movement, especially on the political side. And uh, you find really quickly that even if you are on the right side of the spectrum, boy, there is a lot of opinion on that spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, and so even that is one of those challenges where you find out really quickly, hey, look, you know, I, I might agree with you on this and this and this, but I don't agree with you on this and this and this. And uh, but at least having that under underpinning that set of values that you believe, it makes the job a lot easier. Um, so just a real quick example, you know, one of the things that people think about when they, they hear the word government is just this amorphous blob of bureaucracy. The truth is government is a really nuanced perspective because what government are you talking about? Are we talking about the federal government, the state government, county government, a regional government, or you know, even your local city council? Because you're going to have totally different priorities and perspectives depending on which one you're serving in. New, in, in the city government, we need to have our first things, our first priorities. Um, and I came to the conclusion early in my, in my public service and it hasn't changed 
that your first things when you're on the city council will be public safety, which, you know, for us is police and fire and lifeguards, uh, your public infrastructure, you know, things like roads and, and things like that. And then you're also needing to make sure that you're providing clean water and sewers to work. And so if you're doing those things right, you're doing fine. And you need to, in order to do well, you need to be doing other things like having a great library system or park system and you know, a lot of other things that people come to expect. But if you're failing in any of those first things, then you're failing as a city. And you can go across the entire United States and every time you look at a city and say from the external, oh man, that city's not doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. It's almost always one of those first things. And so if you come in with a kind of a base understanding of what your responsibilities are, the position is a lot easier. Mm -hmm. So favorite podcast? Oh boy, I have so many. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Actually, I listen to them all at two and a quarter speed. So I get to listen to a lot of them, <laughs> which, which by <laughs> the way, so makes fast. it really funny. Yeah, it makes it really funny when I actually meet the person <laughs> in person that I've been listening to for a while. But I would say just uh, given the breadth and quantity, uh, my favorite are the interviews give, that are conducted at the Commonwealth Club of California. They tend to bring in some really interesting people. Yeah. So it's funny when you meet Brene Brown, you're like, oh, you don't sound like a chipmunk. Interesting. Actually, the one that I go, I would I would love to meet in person would be Terry Gross from NPR. Um, so she does fresh air. And if I ever met Terry Gross, I would, I would definitely think that she is speaking very slowly. <laughs> I listen to mine 1.5, not 2.25. That's crazy. That's really fast. <laughs> Favorite vacation spot. I love the national parks right now. So we've been taking our family around last year. We were able to see Grand Teton and Yellowstone and Zion. Uh, this year we've seen, we've seen the Grand Canyon and Mesa Verde National Park. And then this summer we're going to go see Rocky Mountain National Park and uh, Bryce Canyon. And I just, I'm really excited. I love this stuff. And and my kids are really fortunate. They're being able to yeah. be exposed to this early. That's so great. The Tetons are so great. I'm going to give a plug to the Tetons. I just think everyone, you, you know, you have to go to Yellowstone, of course, but the Tetons are to not to be missed. I mean, a float down the Snake River is just absolutely breathtaking. I've done it several times. It's just amazing. So I agree with you on that. Finally. I also encourage rock climbing. The, oh. I, I would say rock climbing too. Um, and you, if you have young kids like we do, uh, you just kind of do bouldering. Uh, but it's one of those outdoor experiences the kids will never forget. And I, I yeah, Grand Tetons was a, a phenomenal experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can do that locally at Joshua Tree. They've got great bouldering there for the kids. Finally, favorite quote. I keep a quote journal. So I mentioned I love reading. So I actually have thousands of quotes that I've saved over the years that I put into social media and speeches and, and whatnot. But my the one that I have in my office that I make sure I reference regularly in pretty much all facets of my life comes from the Old Testament, which is Micah 6, 8. Uh, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? If you can try to do those things every day and you know get close to attaining them, uh, I'm not sure I've ever attained all of them at the same time, but if you can get close and really try, uh, I think you are going to be doing a much better service for those around you and certainly for yourself as well. So uh, Micah 6.8 is the, is the life verse that I've got in my office. Beautiful. I love that. Mine is also, you know, Proverbs 19.21. So mine is also, you know, from the Bible. I love that. Well, thank you, Will. I don't know you personally, but I was highly referred to you by not just Ruth Kobayashi, but several other people who said, you know, you should really reach out to him. And I thought, oh gosh, I don't know him. And I generally am just interviewing people that I know, but you came so highly recommended. And I just really appreciate all that you've done for our community and continue to do for our community. And I just appreciate you taking time to do this. This is our second go around because the first time we tried to do this, Zoom didn't record. And I'm not going to complain because the second time was just as great as the first, but thank you so much. And I really appreciate you. And thank you. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. This is Mish Pierce with Mentor DNA, and I appreciate you tuning in. Please visit mentordna.io for more info on my friends and musings I have from our conversations. Stay tuned for another great episode really soon. See you later. Amor Boutique Hotel is a special place my family and friends love to visit in Sayulita, Mexico. A quick and safe 35-minute shuttle from Puerto Vallarta, and you're on the beach enjoying the most quaint and uniquely designed resort. 
The first minute I walk into our villa and take in the gorgeous decor featuring antique wooden doors and windows, Turkish lamps, and artisan-crafted mosaic floors and ceilings, I immediately feel myself relax to take in Amour Boutique's beauty. This hidden spot has drawn surfers, deep-sea, and spearfishing lovers for decades. The expansive ocean views and five-minute walk into town for an authentic Mexican village filled with exquisite foods and shopping make it really hard to leave. Visit AmourBoutiqueHotel.com and tell them Mentor DNA sent you.